Welcome to the Maximus Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. As a clinical psychologist, medical school professor, and CEO, I specialize in helping men be better in mind, body, and masculinity. On this podcast, I interview extraordinary men as a clinician would, hearing their come up stories of how they became the men that they are today, and having them share their secrets of actionable advice on how to look, feel, and perform your best. Welcome back to the Maximus podcast. Today we have our esteemed guest, Dr. Elliot Kamineski, licensed clinical psychologist and OCD expert. And in this segment, we want to dig into some actionable advice since we have a psychologist and expert um, to learn a little bit about psychotherapy um, and uh, anxiety disorders and, uh, you know, provide some real actionable advice in terms of managing these issues and, and pursuing treatment uh, and why we should. So I'd love to hear um, a little bit more about kind of your practice. Do you, um, do you just do kids and teens? Do you do adults as well? Yeah, so I have um, two separate practices. Okay. Um, I used to have them all under my OCD care, but I'm splitting it into my OCD care and child behavioral health. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, my OCD care is, um, treatment of OCD anxiety disorders, um, uh, panic disorder over the, over the lifespan mm-hmm. and child behavioral health is focused on treatments for children by, um, by way of parents. These treatments include parent child interaction therapy. Um, for kids who struggle with uh, disruptive behaviors um, and space, which is supportive parenting for anxious childhood emotions, Mm -hmm. which is um, a new awesome treatment that's really helps empower parents to help their own children with their anxiety disorders. Amazing. So what's, what's the age range? Like what's the youngest patient, the oldest patient uh, that you, you treat in your practice? Youngest, uh, two and a half Amazing. Uh, oldest. I see people in their seventies. Yeah. And that, what, that must be, uh, provide an amazing breadth of experience, right? You're literally seeing from, from sort of beginning to end of the lifespan. Um, so yeah. I'm sure you have a lot of interesting ex- experience and um, perspectives from, from treating that wide range. Cause most people I think focus a little bit more narrowly. Um, so I, I'd love to hear a little bit your respect of your perspective. Um, uh, especially I think our, our audience is obviously a little bit more adult um, and male oriented given our sort of community. Um, love to hear your perspective on um, men pursuing therapy, right? Unfortunately, there's a little bit of, a, I wouldn't say it's true for everyone, but there is a stereotypical cultural notion that, um, you know, men don't pursue therapy um, and they don't because there's a stigma attached with it, that guys should be self-reliant, right? As kind of a masculine virtue. And if they do, it's, they've essentially failed. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, like if, if someone, uh, you know, came to you with that, or you heard that sort of in the community, how would you address that? Or how do you dispel that myth? Um, the myth that uh, psychotherapy, that, that we could kind of do it on our own, right? Yeah. And that, that it's, uh, that, that men should, in fact, uh, do it on their own. And it's a failure, essentially, if you've, you've gone to therapy, because you can't do it yourself. Right. I, I think therapy is just one 
one of many interventions for anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. I think um, it's helpful to try a lot of things first, mm -hmm. right? I think, um, you know, unless it's, it's very severe, I think, you know, self-help books are extremely effective, yeah. right? Like, I think there's a lot of modules online, um, a, a lot of information out there already, a lot of books. So I don't think you have to necessarily start with a therapist. Hmm. Um, but if those are not working, you know, I think it's most helpful to view it just as any other healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think, you know, practicing in Manhattan, I feel like there's almost like this therapy culture, like people yeah. will say over coffee, like, yeah, my analyst says, oh, that. Right. Or, you know, but they'll quote their therapists when they're doing things. Oh, so, so I'm, I'm sure you know, there's Twitter and Instagram accounts that are just like uh, my therapist quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, my therapist says. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, but there definitely is, you know, this feeling that there's something wrong with me if I can't, you know, figure this out on my own. Mm -hmm. And I do hope that that becomes, you know, less of a popular notion because the treatment for anxiety disorders is almost paradoxical in a way, mm -hmm. because what makes our anxiety go away in the short term actually makes it worse in the long term. Right. And our, um, you know, they're finding more and more that it's not so much the anxiety that's, that is the problem as much as our relationship with those emotions right. that are the problem. And it's an extremely painful thing. And why would anyone want to ever feel that way? Right. But the treatment itself helps people approach that feeling in a non-judgmental way mm -hmm. um, so that they could live the life that they want to live. And anxiety becomes less important. And it becomes, I mean, less important, like less prominent in their lives. Right. At, almost as a um, side effect of not giving it so much weight in terms of the decisions that you make. Totally. Um, yeah. So on this note, you know, you kind of mentioned, that, yeah, there's many ways to skin a cat, right? There's self-help, there's other, other, other treatment modalities. Um, how does someone decide, okay, like everyone has some degree of anxiety or stress, right? Unless you're a psychopath, but how do you decide, okay, uh, you know, whatever I'm doing is not working or, or it's severe enough that maybe I, I should actually seek um, you know, therapy, what, what, what's the criteria or is there a rubric that, um, you know, a guy should go through in helping make that decision? Right. I, I think if therapy is ever available to you mm -hmm. and, um, you know, you have the opportunity to do it, take that opportunity, right. Even, even if you don't necessarily have a uh, major psychopathology, just being able, just that therapeutic relationship is could be an extremely valuable one, mm -hmm. right? So I think if the option is ever open to you, you know, give it a shot. Um, I think when it's important for you to make the decision, e even if you're you're not so gung-ho on this idea of talking to someone, I think if there is functional impairment mm. because of the anxiety disorders and, you know, there are so many things that you want to be able to be doing, but you know, you're pointing to anxiety as the reason why you're not doing it. Yeah. Then, you know, I, I think it's extremely helpful to see someone if, if you're noticing functional impairments, if you're having difficulty enjoying life and 
certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's getting in the way of relationships and friendships and work, you know, there's um, a good reason not to suffer in silence. And, you know, there are people who are trained to do this. And in a matter of um, months, you could really notice tremendous differences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think the point about functional impairment is, is really a critical one, which is, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I, ultimately the hallmark of any sort of disorder is, is it getting in the way of, you know, your social or your op- occupational functioning, right? If you just have anxiety, you're living your life perfectly well and you're perfectly satisfied, then um, you may not need, quote unquote, to do it. Although there's other reasons to do therapy in terms of personal development and growth. Um, but I, I like the the notion of your sharing of um you know, if you, if the option's available to you, it's, it's, I think it's pretty positive for most guys to avail themselves of it, especially I think men, unfortunately in this society are not so emotionally attuned and they're maybe not so emotionally aware. And, um, uh, there's a lot of learning and growth that can, uh, come out of it. And so, you know, like another analogy that I make that's sometimes helpful for folks is it's almost like personal training. Do you absolutely need a personal trainer to, to work out and go to the gym? No, you could obviously learn it on your own, read, books and go to YouTube videos. Um, and that's fine for a lot of people. Um, but basically anyone who competes competitively, any power lifter, Olympic lifter, they all have coaches. Every single one of them um, is not a little, and I work with professional athletes sometimes. I don't know, a single professional athlete does not have a professional coach because they want to take them to the next level, even though they're good enough, they could probably go coach other people, right? If they're an Olympic level athlete, but you can't kind of see you know, your own issues when you're lifting, you don't see your own form, you know, you, it's nice to have someone doing the programming for you and is really an expert. Um, and I think it's the same thing with our mental health as well is, is yeah, there's, there's certainly a benefit to working with a professional that can really, you know, uh, not only address issues of functional impairment, but take you to the next level as well. Yeah. And I think sometimes psychologists are the last one to realize the degree of stigma out there is because the people who reach out to you are the ones who are ready over, you know, overcame it to the point where they picked up the phone and called you. So you have to realize that's probably, I don't know, 0.05% of people and all the people who just said like, you know, just continue to suffer. It's not so bad, even though like, I feel like, um, you know, worried all the time or I'm getting these awful intrusive thoughts, um, you know, like I'll just, I'll just deal with it. Right. So so we often don't get exposure to those who, who just say that. Yeah. Uh, a common question that I get asked is, okay, so I think a lot of guys, especially in this era, um, you know, and hopefully good exposure to folks like you and I have become more open to the notion of therapy, especially if they're more educated, a little bit more of the coastal folks, unfortunately, but it is what it is. Um, I, I think that that's a positive generational shift. So they're like, okay, great. I'm open to the idea. Um, but how do I find a good therapist? It's the classic question I get asked all the time. I'd love to hear your perspective. If you could advise the general public, especially guys in terms of finding a good therapist or psychologist, what should they look for? How should they find them? Um, I think it's important to uh, recognize what you're looking to get out of your therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you have a particular uh, diagnosis or a particular type of issue, it's helpful to look for someone who is um, who prides themselves on being able to treat that particular issue. Mm-hmm. I think uh, sometimes you could get a sense of, you know, what kind of content are they putting out there? Mm-hmm. Like, do they sound like they know what they're talking about on podcasts like this? Mm-hmm. 
And also I think getting the referral of a people you really trust um, is very crucial. Like maybe medical professionals who could say like, I've sent multiple people to this person yep. and you know, they get better. Mm. Right. I think, I think that's very important. Unfortunately, it's, there's such a scarcity of, of mental health professionals that sometimes, you know, the, it's very, very hard to find someone who is qualified to treat, you know, um, particular disorders or, you know, it, it's just, there are so few. So, mm-hmm. um, it could be very hard to find yeah. and they are very often when you do find them, you know, very often they're full Yeah. because, um, you know, there's only so many, you know, if you're a medical doctor, mm-hmm. you'll have a roster of five to 600 patients, Yeah. right? When you're a psychologist, you're seeing probably 25 at a time. Right. So, so I, I think there's definitely a tremendous scarcity of mental health professionals. Yeah. Um, especially, especially hope... quality ones, I would say. Um, yeah. A lot of, a lot of folks practice part-time too. Like same, like I actually, I have a one day a week practice, so I don't see more than a dozen people. Um, you know, uh, so I think that's one challenge. Um, but I think actually you're, you're a great example of this, right? Where, you know, you started the conversation by saying, you know, if you know what you're seeking, try to find someone who's an expert in that area. Right. Like if, if someone went to your website, they would see, okay, Sky went to legitimate, you know, PhD program, did postdoctoral training, specializing in OCD. His whole practice is centered around OCD, has content around it. Like if you have OCD, you, you know, you, you certainly seem like you know what you're talking about and you've, you've done the training, you've done the education. Um, because otherwise, there's a, basically every therapist out there will, will say they treat anxiety disorders and depression. Those yeah. are the most common spectrum of issues that you could possibly have. But I, I think there is a difference between someone who says, oh, yeah, sure, I treat anxiety versus someone who's really spent years training and focusing on and specializing um, in it. So uh, speaking of which, um, I think it'd be really, really great to kind of educate our audience about, I mean, I think everyone knows what anxiety and stress are. Um, but talk a little bit about what anxiety disorders are and specifically OCD. Okay. Um, great question. So, so I think we could, so OCD is conceptualized as an anxiety based disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, it's characterized by intrusive thoughts, which are distressing, unwanted, repetitive, and it doesn't seem like you could just shake it off. Like they're, they're very, very persistent. Mm-hmm. And because of the distress that it causes, um, individuals engage in compulsions, which are these repetitive uh, either behaviors or types of thoughts to neutralize the anxiety um, from these obsessions. And this creates this cycle that could be extremely um, distressing. It could be extremely disabling. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most disabling um, mental health conditions. Mm-hmm. And uh, between one and 3% of the population has OCD and very often they don't know it. Mm. Um, more and more people are focusing on something that's you know, commonly referred to as pure O, which is mm. um, you know, you'll have 
often taboo intrusive thoughts like fears that you, uh, what if you're a pedophile? What if you will harm someone? And these are, are people who are, you you know, the nicest guys ever. And they're mm-hmm. wondering if they're a serial killer underneath yeah. it all, right? So very often they won't get help because it's so, so scary yeah. to, to be open about that. They fear like they'll get in trouble for the thoughts that they're having. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a great deal of um, work being done on, you know, getting people aware that these intrusive thoughts are totally normal. Yeah. It's called OCD and there's treatment for it. Yeah. And that's a, a message that a, a lot of influencers are getting out to the public. Um, so that's just one type of anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, other anxiety disorders include panic disorder, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a condition that's marked by these panic spells where you'll have an extreme fight or flight response, often out of nowhere. Mm. Um, you know, it'll last about 10 minutes and kind of settle down. And it's associated with avoidance um, of cues related to getting a panic attack in the future. Very often these people may stop driving, Mm. going out to uh, wide open areas where help may be very difficult Mm -hmm. to get. Other anxiety disorders, um, such as generalized anxiety disorders, is marked by a constant or near constant worry Mm. um just like you know maybe you're worried about people in your life that that you know may have an accident and it's more uh centered around like everyday worries it's just pretty constant and leaving you feeling extremely exhausted from from these feelings uh you know then there's specific phobia Mm. which includes a fear of heights, fear of, you know, different types of bugs. And, and that's like, almost like you could conceptualize if OCD is fear of these intrusive thoughts, Mm -hmm. specific phobia is fear of things outside, Mm. outside, right? So it could be fear of spiders, fear of heights, um, fear of flying, uh, needles, all the, there's like hundreds of them. And they can be very disabling as well. Um, so there's a whole group of um, anxiety disorders. OCD is not actually categorized in DSM as an anxiety disorder, mm. even though it shares, you know, these properties of anxiety disorders, which is like you have a, a very disproportionate relationship with a particular stimulus mm-hmm. and it results in unhelpful avoidance that's unnecessary um so for example like i think the the example i gave earlier about like me watching my kid in the playground like i have these real like intrusive thoughts of of blunt force trauma (laughs) like him just like falling off you know and terrible things happening and you know so if i would let this go right If, if if i left this fear totally unchecked you know, maybe I would say you can only play in like the, you know, in the, you know, the super safe part of the playground Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where like, you know, there's two-year-olds. So it's important to kind of recognize that anxiety disorders are are marked by behaviors that are unhelpful for you. Right. 
Yeah, and um, you know, unfortunately, there's there's like a very uh, common uh, misunderstanding of OCD, I would say, in the public, right? When people, t they almost use the term casually and incorrectly, like, oh, I'm so OCD, or that person's so OCD, referring to someone who's particularly perfectionistic, right? They like color code their closets, or they, they like things put in a certain way, and they, they call that OCD. Um, so maybe it'd be useful if you could, you describe what OCD is, right? When these sort of um, intrusive thoughts that cause a lot of anxiety, which someone tries to make go away by engaging in a compulsive behavior or ritual that uh, helps avoid or, or kind of numb the anxiety. Um, what's the difference between that OCD and OCPD? Okay, um, so I think what some people you know, the, there's that cliche, like he's so OCD. So there's something called just right OCD, hmm. where um, let's say you have, so, so that like stereotype of OCD could actually be a type of OCD where you almost feel like this physical discomfort when things are not in a particular order. Um, so like, let's say there, there are two pencils that are just like, not aligned correctly, like you may feel tremendous discomfort unless you line them up. Um, so that could be OCD. Um, and then it could also be OCPD, which is characterized by maladaptive perfectionism, right? You have, um, whereas OCD, it's kind of characterized by these experiences which are totally unwanted, yeah. right? Um, OCPD, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, is not necessarily, you know, very often they won't be coming and seeking treatment for their OCPD. They, they may believe like this is the way things should be. Right. Right. And really the problem is everyone else who's totally okay with shoddy work. Mm -hmm. Right. And maybe what I should be working on is how to get more perfect. And, you know, they may not have insight into how their, their relationship with perfectionism is actually making them less productive mm -hmm. and it's causing um, you know people are not wanting to work with them uh, because they they're putting demands that are just not achievable um, so so it, it's it stands for obsessive compulsive personality disorder a term that i really don't like personality mm -hmm. disorder because <laughs> right. like who are we other than our personality right, right. to call something like the personality disorder versus like there are behaviors that you could change yeah. um even though it's more characterological than let's say you know a major depressive episode or an anxiety disorder mm -hmm. i think um it might not be the most helpful term personality disorder so just yeah. wanted to put that out, out there uh, totally. but it is used and yeah so there's maladaptive perfectionism in ocpd there's also difficulty delegating right? Like I can't trust anyone to do things right. And therefore I take everything on myself and, you know, therefore I'm much less um, productive. There could be a, a tremendous amount of difficulty making decisions. Like you could spend hours and days and weeks, like picking out the perfect flight, right? And you're canceling the flight and you're booking another one and you're using different miles. And all this time you could have like, been much more productive in other areas and you're thinking about like what's the perfect flight because you almost feel physical discomfort mm. around you know not doing it 
Yeah. Um, so, so those are some characteristics of OCPD. In my um, postdoc, I worked with Dr. Anthony Pinto, who is who did a lot of writing on and is an expert in OCPD. So I got a lot of great experience working with OCPD there. Excellent. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, one of the things that I find is a useful differentiator between the two is this notion of being ego syntonic versus ego dystonic, right? Right. So pointed out in OCD, even if they don't know their OCD, I think most people know there's something off or wrong that, that, that these thoughts are intrusive they it bothers them that they have these thoughts for the most part um and they they would probably wish that they didn't uh yeah. with ocpd as you point out it's almost like yeah maybe they see that this, is, this is the way that it should be this is the way that i am um, and as you point out they also often don't come to treatment for for oc for for kind of a uh, pathological perfectionism. Uh, it's just kind of the way they are. Oftentimes I found it's their, their, their wife or, yeah. their boss or someone else who's just like, I can't deal with this person. You, you need to go to therapy. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm curious because that, that, that may be prognostic for treatment in the sense of if someone doesn't think they have a problem or doesn't think it is a problem, um, or, or may not necessarily want to get better. Uh, how how treatable do you do you think OCPD is? Do you do you do you actually have cases and 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 kind of what's the what's the prognosis for them getting better? Um, I think even if they don't necessarily see it as a problem, very often because it is a problem, mm. like they'll be they'll recognize that there are consequences in their life for it, yeah. right? So the students who is not handing in assignments because they keep on deleting it and rewriting it mm. and they're failing out of class, like they won't necessarily know that it's really the perfectionism underlying it, but they, they don't want to fail class anymore or they don't want to have these huge conflicts in their marriage. Um, so, so I think you could really get a lot of traction because of the consequences that arise from having OCPD. Um, and it is a treatable condition and there is, um, you know, there is treatment out there and really you're helping them develop flexibility mm. and come into contact with that discomfort that comes from the imperfections, um, right? Because it, it almost feels, you know, disgusting to some of them, mm. right? And, and it's something that they could get used to in service of, you know, not having their marriage fall apart or not getting fired from their job. So I think there definitely is hope for, for them, yeah. um, given that there are real consequences that they don't want from it. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think it's great to talk about these on a podcast because, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, our society is not um, exposed to, you know, the spectrum of these conditions. Uh, and even if they're, um, like each particular condition is relatively rare, right? You said OCD, one to 3% of the population. The amalgamation of all anxiety disorders, probably a third of people at some point in their lives will have some anxiety disorder, right? So it's actually not yeah. that rare if you think about it. So I think it's useful to talk about these things to expose people so that if they suspect they might have some of these things, you know, it, it might be useful to, you know, look up more information and, and pursue these things. But I would encourage people don't self-diagnose um, that's often not helpful. And, and these things are subtle, right? The difference between OCD and OCPD. And that's why, you know, a trained professionals is, uh, you know, should be a really good diagnostician help kind of figure out these subtleties in order to come up with the best treatment plan, um, obviously for you. So yeah. um, speaking of treatment, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, okay, 
So you explained kind of the spectrum of anxiety disorders. We talked about a few in particular, OCD and OCPD, given that's your particular specialty. Um, talk about what does treatment look like, especially for a guy who's just like, I, I don't know what therapy looks like. I have to lay on a couch and talk about my childhood or my feelings or whatever, yeah. whatever silly notions people have. Um, yeah, if you could almost describe people like what, what does, um, I, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, um, you know, look like for, for the treatment of anxiety disorders? Uh, so, so if you'll notice in my office, there's absolutely no couches. <laughs> so you will be sitting upright. Sure. In fact, we may be walking outside, you know, treatment isn't limited to the office, especially nowadays. Uh, it's actually That's all done virtually. Great point. Um, right. So we're going to get a sense of what, what's first, uh, what, what are the functional issues? Like where is the anxiety disorder impacting you most? Um, and what, what, what kind of triggers are leading you to, to do behaviors that are not in your best interest, mm. right? So maybe those triggers are thoughts. Maybe those triggers are um, internal sensations like, like your, um, your heart rate. Mm -hmm. um, maybe it's particular people, right? So you kind of get to, to have a really thorough understanding of the constellation of their relationship between you know, their environment and their behaviors mm -hmm. and their emotions and their thoughts and their physiological reactions, yeah. right? And what is not working here, right? So, you know, in OCD very often we'll have individuals who will have certain intrusive thoughts mm -hmm. brought on by a particular situation. So, so in the example um, I brought, on, brought up before, like someone could have intrusive thoughts that they may harm someone. Yep. And that's really, really scary because the truth is you could harm someone, right? Like there are sharp objects everywhere. And just the thought that, you know, if you did a particular thing, you could just stab someone it could be horrifying, mm -hmm. right? So individuals with OCD, right, they may have that thought and they take that thought very seriously, right? right? And they'll have an emotional reaction to that thought. And they'll engage in certain behaviors, um, such as either trying, it could be mental behaviors, such as trying to convince themselves why that would never happen. Mm -hmm. Or it could be behaviors like getting rid of all knives in the house, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that could be very unhelpful, because not only because you won't have knives in your house, and it's difficult to set the table, mm -hmm. but also because it really lends credence to the ideas that, hey, you could be a serial killer. Yeah. Right. Or so in the course of treatment, you help them recognize that, you know, it, it's okay to have these thoughts. It's okay to even have the discomfort that comes up from that thought. But by detaching that discomfort to all these compulsions, mm. right, um, such as getting rid of the knives or things like that, and even purposefully doing those behaviors, which bring up those thought changes the relationship you have with the thoughts with the anxiety that comes with those thoughts and also in behaviors that you really need to learn how to do again mm -hmm. right so so those are called exposures where we have them engage in behaviors which bring up these thoughts mm -hmm. and we have them act according to what they know to be you know things that they'd like to do like being able to use a knife regardless of the thoughts that come up regardless of the emotions that come up and just 
to keep on targeting any kind of avoidance, whether it's mental avoidance or behavioral avoidance. Um, and in doing so, the anxiety disorder kind of crumbles mm -hmm. because it's really perpetuated and maintained by these avoidance behaviors and these avoidant type thinking, right? So if every time a thought of what if I'm a serial killer comes up, mm -hmm. I have to give this whole argument against it, right. you're in this never ending mental debate. And then how much mental energy do you have left to talk to your partner uh, to like show up to work and do well, right? It's so exhausting. So mm -hmm. you learn how to like, you know, when the thought comes up, you can have a totally different reaction instead of debating it. You could, you know, agree with the thought and say, hey, you know, in, in this kind of flippant way, like, yeah, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. And you learn these like how to not engage with these intrusive thinking. Right. So that you can really live the life you want to live and not have them hold you back. Totally. Um, and I, I'm curious. Um, you know, when it comes to examples that are very um, ego uh, dystonic, right? Like like a serial killer, where if you you kind of know you're probably not a serial killer, if you, if you someone acts really drills down into it, you, you literally have no criminal record, no evidence of, of such. But I'm curious, how, how do you deal with that? I'm sure you're seeing this a lot more now in this day and age with intrusive thoughts that may not be unrealistic, right? If someone has a more germaphobe kind of OCD and they're afraid of giving COVID, which is obviously not an unrealistic thing, um, how do you deal with those kinds of intrusive thoughts? Yes, I, I think it's, that's really an important question. Uh, I, I think you could differentiate between you know, the types of thoughts that are totally magical in nature and those that are based in reality. So for example, um, yes, you could get an infection uh, by not washing your hands and we're told to wash our hands, even, even pre-pandemic, like you're supposed to wash your hands, right? And they would even say like when washing your hands, you know, say the ABCs, you know, do it for a certain length of time so as not to get sick. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think it's always based or, or very often based in reality, sometimes when it comes to response prevention, right? So exposure is, is doing these behaviors that you're avoiding that because they bring up anxiety and response prevention is not doing those behaviors mm -hmm. uh, that are unhelpful to temporarily reduce that anxiety, right? So response prevention for some things is totally don't do them, right? Don't hide the notes no matter what. But sometimes response prevention is finding a reasonable precaution, right? So I think when it comes to hand washing, right, it's about washing your hands, but only washing it once, right? right? Very often, you know, when it comes to OCD, the, the function of the hand washing is not about getting rid of the germs, it's about getting rid of the anxiety. And yeah. because the action maintains the anxiety, the demand to keep on washing your hands just continues and perpetuates. Mm -hmm. Right. So so I think you kind of come up with a guideline because, yeah, safety behaviors is important. Mm -hmm. Right. So compulsion, sometimes it's used interchangeably with safety behaviors. But like, you know, I have I biked over here and my helmet's in my bag. Like, right. that's a safety behavior. But sure. I think it's specifically OK because it it's considered helpful yeah. and it doesn't get in my way. Right. So you want to engage in the safety behaviors that are, you know, data makes sense based on data as something that's helpful in common practice and then stop at that point and stopping at that point will will not necessarily address the anxiety right because the anxiety will continue to rise but you have to learn that you don't have to go beyond that 
right? right? You don't wash your hands to get rid of anxiety. You wash your hands based on CDC recommendations. Yeah. That, that's such a great point. I think this is the point that people sort of miss is, you know, we're talking about uh, sig clinically significant OCD. It's folks that are washing their hands often like 30 times. They're literally rubbing their hands raw. Uh, it's, it's really becoming dysfunctional. There's nothing wrong with washing your hands. And to your point, we actually should. Um, but yeah, you know, after the first time, there's, there's sort of a diminishing marginal benefit, right? You're not getting yeah. your hands any cleaner or you're not ridding yourself of any more germs once you've washed them once. At that point, um, as you were saying, it really serves to, you know, uh, uh, try to make the anxiety go away, right? And that's why people are watching it two, three, four, 29 times at that point. Um, because, you know, um, the way that I kind of was uh, described is sometimes like OCD uh, is, is almost like the doubting disease, right? The, the, the switch in our brains that um, normally after washing our hands once, we'd be like, okay, I've, d I've done what I'm supposed to do and I feel reassured essentially that point. That reassurance never happens in sort of OCD. And that's why you see people checking their door. It's kind of, it's, it's almost bizarre to watch sometimes. They'll, they'll lock their door or turn off the stove um, and most people will be like, all right, I, I clearly saw it shut off, but then they'll leave and they'll be like, oh, I doubt that it actually was off and or, or locked and I'll have to double check. And they sit there in their rational mind. They're like, I've checked this 17 times. I know it's locked, but that part of you that gets that reassurance never quite gets reassured. And so it's a little bit, um, it's, it's, it's difficult because it's almost like your mind's almost like playing a trick on you. Right. So, um, Lee Bear, yeah. who, who was my professor at Harvard Medical School, kind of described OCD as almost like the imp of the mind, right? It's right, like right. this little creature who like tells you falsities um, that you can't sort of believe because it's it's deceiving literally your eyes. And that's why I think it's such a tricky, uh, tricky condition is because it's like, you know, your mind's saying one thing, your eyes are seeing another and there is a discordance. And, and how do you sort of reconcile that reality? Um, and, you know, to your point, it's it's kind of realizing that every time you give into the anxiety, you're feeding the tiger and you're actually making it worse. I think that's the that's the paradox. Yeah. And one thing I'll add is that there's often like two levels of fear going on. Mm. Right. So, you know, you're lying in bed and you already checked the door twice and you're like, should I go do it a third time? So sometimes they're not even afraid that the door is unlocked, mm -hmm. but they don't want to have to think about it the whole night. So they're fearing like the experience of having intrusive thoughts. And they're like, maybe if I check it one more time, I won't have to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. So like, so very often, you know, they get to the point where they recognize, like, I realize I'm not washing, like I'm not getting any, any cleaner by washing my hands, but I know if I go on the subway right now, like I'm going to be thinking about it the whole time. Did I definitely lock the door? Did I definitely do it? So, so that's also a very big motivator to continue compulsions, which are really unhelpful. Yeah, that's a good point. So it really almost becomes about you're, you're sitting there and you're like, uh, you're, you're feeding the, the anxiety or you're like making almost like deals with yourself in order to, to make the anxiety go away. But really it's just, it's just making it worse and perpetuating it in the long term. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you, you also talked about the exposure or exposure therapy is the kind of the critical component of uh, CBT. Um, and you mentioned ERP, exposure and response prevention. Uh, this is, I think, a really actually important point for guys, because I think sometimes there's this, uh, if they haven't been in, in therapy or certainly not a therapy for anxiety disorders, notion that all you do is talk, right? It's just talk therapy or just cognitive therapy. 
When in fact, I would argue, especially if you're doing like an anxiety disorder based treatment, it's almost as one of my professors like to say um, for CBT, for insomnia, it's almost little C, big B. You do a little bit of the cognitive stuff, but it's really a behavioral therapy. And I actually think that's great for guys because guys, I think, tend to like to be a little bit more active, do things. And, and that's why it's very surprising. Most people don't realize that, yeah, it's like you, you may, in fact, do therapy not inside the therapy room. You might be walking around doing ex exposures as part of the treatment. So it's not just sitting there, you know, uh, navel gazing uh, as people like the sort of stereotype, but it's actually a very active, intensive behavioral thing. Um, and in fact, that's what literally leads to the neurological changes. And we've seen studies that compare uh, exposure and response prevention to SSRIs. And you see the same neurological changes that happen in the brain from doing yeah. it. So behavior really does change the brain. Um, so let's dig in a little bit more on this exposure, like, and exposure and response prevention. Um, so if someone re recognizes, okay, I'm having, having sort of this problematic, um, you know, uh, anxiety, uh, you know, the way that I've been dealing with it in terms of, uh, trying to give into it or make it go away, hasn't seemed to be working. And in fact, it may be making it worse. Um, and then they come to you and then, and you know, uh, you start, um, on this course of exposure, how would you go about kind of, uh, maybe you could talk about building an exposure hierarchy, graduate exposure, things of that nature. Yeah. So, so I think you, you start from, okay. So, so like you mentioned that exposures are doing the things that you are not doing because of intrusive thoughts or because of um, anxiety, mm -hmm. right? So, so you kind of look at all the things that you are not doing. And I, I think starting in a place um, that number one is getting in the way of them living the life they want to live and really starting there, you get a tremendous amount of gains because they get to feel like the positive uh, reinforcement of being able to do the things, right? So if someone you know, has social anxiety and like, which could be like fears of negative social appraisal or things like that. So maybe they're not, they're like not walking down the hall mm -hmm. when other people are present. Mm -hmm. So like before, you know, having them, you know, strike up a conversation with someone who is uh, intimidating, you'll have them just like walk down the hall. And then maybe beyond that, you'll have them say, say hi or make eye contact with a stranger. Um, beyond that, you know, you'll, you'll practice, you'll like go to a party with them. Well, back in the heyday, uh, yeah. and, and have them actually strike up a conversation with someone and you really empower them slowly, but surely to, to not have anxiety determine the, their behavioral direction. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, you help them do things and whatever anxiety shows up, shows up right but we we kind of learn to detach you know the behaviors that we do and you know the the degree of anxiety whereas someone when you have anxiety disorders when you have anxiety disorder anxiety is such a strong predictor of whether or not you do a particular behavior yeah and in the course of exposure therapy you really understand functionally what are the what are the barriers they need to cross um and really motivate them to, to do these things, mm -hmm. right? To, to overcome this anxiety by facing all these fears that they have yeah. one by one. 
So uh, let me play devil's advocate, if you will, for a second. So you know, the patient walks in and he's like, okay, doc, I, I get what you're saying. It all sounds really rational. I'm sure there's a ton of evidence that shows that it works, but you're telling me that the way that I get over my anxiety is to face all the fears that I've been avoiding. And if, I, well, if I could have done that, you know, uh, I, would have, I wouldn't be here, right? So this is gonna be really, really painful and I don't think I can do it. What would you, what would you tell someone? Um, I would say you can. <laughs> I would say we're going to do it at a pace that works for you. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, sometimes it's about doing micro exposures, mm -hmm. right. Which might be like, you know, in, in the example I gave with, with uh, social anxiety, like maybe it's just looking into the hallway instead of even walking there. Right. So doing it in such a gradual way where it becomes uh, manageable. And, you know, my slogan for my practice is actually like, learn what you're capable of. Because so often you're so, you have no idea because you've avoided it for so long, you have no idea like when you're motivated to do this, how much you're able to do that you don't think you're able to do. Right. And, um, you know, very, you know, in terms of the way the field is moving and how we understand exposures, rather than it being getting used to the fear, it's about really learning, right? Or inhibitory learning, about learning, um, learning things about the situation that things that you thought was not safe is actually safe. Yeah. Learning that anxiety itself is safe. Right. Um, so you're really learning so much about yourself and in doing so it becomes easier for you. And, you know, I'm never gonna make you do things you don't wanna do and I'm going to teach you how to do these things and you're going to practice it on your own and you're going to see how how much you get out of it and it almost starts to fall like dominoes when you start kind of relating to yourself as someone who could do hard things yeah you're someone who could um you know break the the barriers of anxiety and that doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to feel anxious like i had tremendous social anxiety growing up mm. and believe it or not i'm feeling anxious right now as we speak <laughs> Right. But I kind of detach like, you know, the anxiety from the things that I do and I, I'm letting the anxiety be there. Sometimes it'll come up and I'll be like, oh, I don't know the answer to that. Oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> right. And you kind of just um, try your best and wing it. And you kind of have a different relationship with that anxiety. It's not necessarily your dictator and telling you what to do. But this, you know, this part of you that's trying to keep you safe and sometimes doesn't do a great job with that and sometimes does. Right. I love that. It's almost a little bit of self-compassion, right? Like it's like, oh, okay, you know, fear and anxiety are normal emotions. We evolved them for a reason, but sometimes, of course, they do get out of control and kind of dictate our lives a little too much, right? So you can almost like, you know, thank your mind for that thought to use kind of an act, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Um, but I, I really love what you said about, you know, I'm the kind of person that can do hard things. I think the the moment someone adopts a belief like that, it's very powerful, almost self-fulfilling um prophecy in, in a way um and I, I think that you know someone over the course of therapy uh if they can move and actually really believe that um can do anything you know quite frankly um yeah and i think that's and, a really important too because uh you know uh social anxiety i think is really common i actually did a lot of social anxiety treatment at, at ucla during my training and it was really interesting i would i would see folks who uh, sometimes actually they, they were paradoxically they weren't very distressed like when you, they weren't very anxious and cause, and cause I talked to them and they'd admit they have social anxiety, but they've almost gotten so used to it. They would never go out. 
And so they never felt the social anxiety because their life became so restricted. They're like, I never go out. I, I you know, I go to work. I do my little thing. I come home and, and I watch Netflix. And so I'd be like, how was your week? And they're like, great. I didn't have any anxiety. I'm like, well, you also didn't live your life. Um, right. Uh, because, you know, you're living in the service of avoiding anxiety rather than living it. Um, and it didn't bother them because they almost forgot what it's like to be social or to, to have adventures or to go up and talk to people or uh, dates or do all, all kinds of things. Um, yeah. And I think that's, that's the other part that people are um, sometimes less aware of. There's the pain of the anxiety, right? And, and yes, doing the exposures is sometimes painful because you have to confront that which you've been avoiding and, and fearing. Um, but there's the pain of not living either, right? And that sometimes is not top of mind until you sit there and you're in therapy and you're like, man, look at all the things that you're missing out on. You know, wouldn't, is, isn't that, would you, would, wouldn't you want more of that in your life, even if it meant having a little bit more anxiety? And for most people, the answer is yes. And, and that becomes part of the treatment in itself is to kind of, um, you know, reconnect them with, uh, with a full, rich, meaningful, uh, you know, life that they're living. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And like my, my, uh, what is it called? My logo is actually something that goes from like very, very narrow and like uh -huh. expands outwards. It looks a little bit like a plant, but I, I kind of made that as just this idea that, you know, when you're, when you have anxiety disorder, you kind of feel like you have to be very limited and, right. you know, because you don't want to feel anxiety. And then through, through the treatment, you kind of learn that you really could expand your life, right? You could, and no matter what that takes, you know, people are so inspiring in terms of the work that they do. Like they, you see how hard it is for them and you see the changes. And that's kind of what makes me love this work. And I think especially with kids, mm. right? Like you see, you know, because their brain is so plastic, mm -hmm. you see like these amazing changes in them, like where they think like there's no way in hell they could do that. And then, you know, working with the parents and teaching them to, to encourage their kids about how they're brave and you don't have to remove these obstacles, you know, for them, you see like such almost like instantaneous changes. And it's really inspiring to watch. And obviously I think it's important to, to recognize that, you know, there are people who don't respond to this treatment, mm -hmm. right? Like I think it's easy to focus on, on, the, on the awesome, you know, turnarounds, but there are individuals who drop out of treatment. Yeah. There are individuals who um, aren't responding. There are some people who are partially responding. And I think it's important to recognize that there are um, sometimes medications are helpful as well. Yeah. Um, sometimes there are people who I work with who, um, you know, they've, they've kind of noticed improvements and then there's kind of this plateau and they're still uncomfortable. Yeah. And sometimes those individuals really start medication and it makes a big difference for them. Yeah. So I think it's important, you know, in terms of there definitely is also there's a stigma on psychotherapy. There's also certainly a stigma on taking medications. Absolutely. And I think it's something to to be open to. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with, I think, um, things like OCD, where, where there may be uh, a little bit more of a neurological basis, especially for the more severe um, you know, forms of that we see. And, and obviously combination treatment can be very helpful as well. Sometimes, you know, getting uh, on medication can get people to come to treatment that they may be avoiding. Because yeah, if you're socially anxious, um, coming and talking one-on-one -on -one with a therapist is yeah. exposure in and of itself. 
Um, and so, but you have to be willing to at least take that first step in order to get better. Yeah. Uh, something I actually was really curious to get your opinion on is, you know, I'm, I'm really fascinated by anxiety disorders in the post-internet era and how they've almost evolved. Because if you think about it, like, you know, a lot of like OCD intrusive thoughts, like, you know, that you're having um, thoughts implanted in your head by, by the TV or radio, obviously could only exist in an era where there is television or radio. So right. it's, it's almost like the disorders kind of take on the, the characteristics of the society that we're in. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in, in, um, you know, ex in, you know, I've written a lot about this excessive internet use or problematic internet use. Um, and it's not really well characterized in the DSM. We have internet gaming disorder, a specific re refers to people who obviously are playing video games for in a problematic way. We're not talking about every once in a while, 10, 12 hours a day, and it's significantly getting, getting in the way of school or work. Um, have you seen a, a rise of sort of, uh, if, if it's even fair to call them anxiety disorders, I'm curious your, your opinion about um, people kind of compulsively using the internet. Now there may not be an, an intrusive thought. I don't know if this is a just right kind of OCD or there's something else going on, but I, I certainly have seen a lot of people who describe, you know, a vague anxiety that they feel and the way that they make it feel go away is they check their phone or the social media or the computer hundreds of times a day um, or they're on you know go down the reddit or wikipedia rabbit hole for hours at a time and they certainly feel regret afterwards or like what the hell happened where did my time go it's not not you know uh, and and they they don't necessarily um they wouldn't want to spend their time that way how would you characterize that that problem is is that an anxiety disorder and how, is it different than the way you treat uh, a classical ocd Right. Well, I guess I'll start by saying, you know, just in terms of with the onset of the internet, how compulsions changed. Mm. Uh, so very often with health anxiety, there's like, um, you know, which is kind of like constant concern about getting a particular illness, uh, regardless of your particular chances of getting it. So you'll have individuals who are constantly Googling symptoms or on WebMD all day. And uh, I'm part of this OCD specialist group on Facebook and someone asked like, what did people do before Google for this compulsion? And like, you know, the, the clinicians who've been there for, you know, for decades have been like, they would call the NAH a lot, right? Like there were like different ways to, you know, the internet kind of brought, you know, compulsions at your fingertips, just like it brought everything at your fingertips. It certainly brought, uh, you know, very easy to do certain types of compulsions. You could do a ton of research on OCD, which could be a huge yeah. compulsion, right? Because so often it's in kind OCD, of OCD about OCD. <laughs> yeah, right. Because sometimes people think like, if it's OCD, then it's not real. So I need to make absolutely sure that it is OCD. And how do you do that? You go on OCD Reddit or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think what you described in terms of like the discomfort people feel, which they kind of self-soothe with, mm -hmm. with different devices, I think that could be more likened to um, maybe uh, body-focused repetitive behaviors where you almost kind of feel, um, you feel like an urge and that urge is causing discomfort. And then you kind of just go to a particular behavior mm -hmm. in a very repetitive fashion. So it's not, it's like in terms of the reinforcement cycle, 
um, maybe it's more like addiction mm. where, where there is, you know, originally it starts positive reinforcement, right? Like I like the feeling of it and then you kind of build dependence and then you have the, uh, more like the negative reinforcement cycle, whereas you feel like the discomfort before you take a drink and then it kind of keeps the cycle going. So I think it's similar with internet use and, you know, especially with, you know, they have the most brilliant engineers out there really tapped into human psychology and human behavior better than any, than probably 99% of psychologists out there recognizing how, we are social beings and we are so cued into how we're being perceived by other people mm-hmm. and social media is all about that right so you will feel discomfort right um if if you don't if there's information you know people communicating about you right like you're tagged in a post like how can you just not um you know reply or someone likes your posts like we are so motivated by it and they really have us by the most deepest primitive emotions. Totally. And I think, um, you know, that's kind of builds that that kind of addictive cycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's kind of ironic because we, we've been spending a lot of this time talking about behavioral therapy. I almost feel like a lot of tech uh, uh, product designers are essentially using behaviorism for evil uh, in terms of getting people hooked uh, through re- reinforcement to obviously engaging in their apps. Um, rather than trying to extinguish some of these behaviors. So if, yeah. if you're characterizing a little bit more as an, perhaps an addictive spectrum kind of behavior, how would you, how would you address that or treat, uh, treat that? Um, great question. Let me think. So it's not my specialty um, addiction, but I, I do think it needs to be, there needs to be stimulus control. Mm-hmm. Uh, ha- habit reversal training, mm-hmm. right? So you you recognize, you know, so if you're trying not to drink, you really need to make sure that you don't have like an awesome cabinet of alcohol, yeah. you know, in, in your living room, right? So you kind of really want to make the behaviors more challenging for you to do, which means definitely get the apps off your phone, mm-hmm. right? Um, it can mean, you, you know, like, so, so I guess it's similar to, to drinking, let's say you have people who are, feel like they need to go cold turkey. Mm-hmm. And, and then there are those who kind of try to learn to have, um, you know, a healthy medium. Right, right. What's it called with regards to, yeah, like moderation. So I, I think you could have it. It's just, you have to be very aware of the forces acting upon you. And you need to, for example, shut up all notification notifications because those will just drag you on like recognize um you know recognize that you really need to limit your access to these things and you know if it's something where it's really getting in the way of your life and it's you know impacting your ability to be with your family and hang out with your kids like it could like a really solid behavioral psychologist could be helpful for that Mm-hmm. to really recognize all your triggers for compulsive internet use um, and how to really limit the, your your exposure to those triggers um, to engaging in problematic internet behavior. I'm not even talking about like, you know, compulsive sexual internet behaviors. Right, pornography, um, yeah. But just simply, you know, just social media can be so addictive. Absolutely, yeah. 
And in fact, that was kind of the impetus for me to, to write sort of the dopamine fasting protocol was for, for people who are maybe it's not, you know, clin clinically significant. Um, how do you take sort of principles of CBT like stimulus control, which you just mentioned, and apply that to kind of problematic um, internet use or any problematic behavior uh, for that matter? And obviously, if it is significant enough, then absolutely, I, I concur, you know, go, go see a good behavioral psychologist. If you feel like you can't handle it on your own, then yeah, there's no shame in, in obviously getting help. Um, and as you point out, yeah. it's not because you're weak, it's because you there's billion, multi-billion, uh, if not trillion dollar companies with the, the brightest minds of our generation working on making you uh, uh, an addict, quite frankly. So I think we're all kind of uh, uh, victims of it. You know, ironically, yeah. you know, I, coming from Silicon Valley, uh, I actually purposely didn't have an iPhone uh, for a while because I knew I was like, I know myself, I'm going to become an addict like everyone else um, yeah. until our company launched our own, you know, um, iOS app. And I was like, OK, I have to get one. And then, of course, what happened, I ended up spending too much time on the phone exactly as I predicted. Right. So yeah. and, and I know better. Right. So but that's that's but we're human. Right. I always say we're humans first, psychologists second. And so, you know, I think we can have empathy for, for kind of the stuff that everyone kind of goes through and that, um, just like you're saying, like, yes, uh, we experience social anxiety, being interviewed and, you know, uh, overused things. And, um, but I think it's, it's part of the human experience. Um, and also we should know that, you know, if it becomes too much, there are, there are really good and effective ways of, of addressing it. So, yeah. And one thing I'll add is that, um, it's, it could be very helpful to have uh, kind of other things to do, mm. right? I think because people use social media so much and it's also so stimulating that it's very, you know, hard to just stop it because then you just have, you know, this like just deficit and this need. Right. So you really need to find other things that are going to fill that, those hours of time that's not yeah. going to be used for social media use. Absolutely. Yeah. I, 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 you know, when I work with clients, I, I talk about sort of instituting self-soothing, you know, behaviors and rituals, because if it's serving that function, but obviously in, in a, in a maladaptive way, you can't just strip away people's, you know, defenses willy nilly. So yeah, it's kind of fun even working with adult males um, who are very competent in other areas of life. It's like, all right, like, how do you, how do we figure out a nice little ritual to calm, calm yourself down in a way yeah. that's adaptive, uh, not problematic. And people come up with all kinds of interesting things. Um, but yeah, you know. they even sell like these blocks of rubbers, like that are shaped like a phone, because just people need that, oh, yeah. that that physical feeling of something in their hand that they're playing with. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating how yeah how hooked we've gotten. Um, you know, I, in fact, I had a client the other day who um, uh, turned off the colors on their phone, which sounds so simple, but he actually was like, yeah, it was tremendously effective from a stimulus control perspective because. The stimuli we're, we're so associated with the little red dot of the notifications that we, we yeah. conditioned ourselves to be like, oh, that's the juicy reward coming up in terms of <laughs> get rid of that message or an alert. Yeah. Um, and and he said literally changing the colors on his phone, um, which I almost like didn't believe would be effective, but this is you know direct report from from real experience was like he's like yeah I, it, it somehow sucked the temptation out. And he's like Instagram for instance, which is obviously very visual. Uh, he's like it just became not appealing anymore. Uh, in black, yeah. which is so fascinating. So really, um, yeah. these things, these things are very powerful. So I, I encourage people to experiment even a little bit in their own lives with um, various forms of stimulus control. Because um, yeah, the best thing you can do step one behaviorism 101 is, uh, yeah, get yourself out of temptations way or, or, or at least reduce the triggers um, 
that stimulate it. Um, all right, one last question. I know we're 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 um, I've been talking for a while, but uh, uh, I, I love to ask this question because you know, as we talked about, you you um, not only deal with kids, adults, but especially parents um, in your practice. And I know you speak on the importance of sort of being an authoritative uh, father and raising boys to become healthy, well-adjusted men. Um, I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on, on what, do you, what do you think are important elements to be able to do that? Okay. So I would start with saying that um, parenting has really swung from like parenting let's say in the fifties where it was like, almost like very authoritarian. Yeah. Like you do what I say because I said it. Yep. And it, it really went to the other end of the, of the spectrum where parents feel overwhelmingly, certainly the parents that I speak to overwhelmingly helpless hmm. in intervening, um, you know, in helping their kids with their anxiety and also kind of helping them with behavioral control. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I think, um, you know, they're learning that yelling at them doesn't work after a while because, right. you know, just like exposure therapy, the kids habituate to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And they know that, you know, they're not allowed to hit them. So they end up not having helpful alternatives to be authoritative parents. Mm. Right. And I, I think, you know, so certainly for kids who have behavioral issues, um, or who really struggle with impulsive or aggressive behaviors. You know, there is a treatment out there called parent-child interaction therapy, mm -hmm. which really helps parents um, give positive attention to, to positive behaviors in their children mm. and learn to lower your expectations of, of having your kid be this perfect kid, mm. right? And kind of this very, very well-behaved kids. And we're really helping them become, you know, good citizens and healthy adults, which might not be like as perfectly behaved kids. And I think parents get very frustrated uh, because feeling like they have to totally control their kids. Yeah. And much more important is to be able to kind of pick your battles very carefully, mm. right? And, and kind of lower your expectations on your kids' behavior. But when you do ask them to do something, Mm -hmm. Right. It's expected that they listen. Yeah. Right. Because if you yell at your kid for both, um, you know, playing with their food and also running into the street, they're not going to recognize that there's a difference. Right. Right. So so really calibrate um, your interventions very carefully um, so that they, they really understand, like, what's what's important. And I think with regards to anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, we evolved. Uh, humans that babies are totally helpless, mm -hmm. right? Like they totally depend on their parents for protection. Mm. And then they cue their parents to basically, you know, by crying, um, you know, to get their parents to intervene on their behalf, mm -hmm. right? So, so that, you know, normatively works. But when a kid has an anxiety disorder, mm. they're cueing their parents' help even in the absence of danger. Right. So basically the parental response in these circumstances are extremely important because you want to kind of help your child learn what's safe and what's not. Mm -hmm. And if you're responding through accommodation of anxiety disorders the same way, you're going to 
un, you know, unfortunately reinforce anxiety disorders. Right. Right. So um, it's kind of really helpful to, to recognize, you know, when you are um, doing things to get rid of your children's anxiety versus supporting them through, through it. Mm-hmm. Kind of really instilling the sense that I know this is hard for you. And I know that you could do this because I know you could do difficult things because you're brave. Right. And I, I think really instilling in any of your kids this idea that they're able to overcome fear is the greatest gift you could give to your child um, rather than getting rid of obstacles for them. Amazing. I, I think that's such a powerful line. It's worth repeating that you, that you should instill the belief that they can overcome their fear. Yeah. And I I think, you know, that's the classic definition of courage, right? It's not the absence of fear, but it's having fear and going ahead and doing it anyway. So um, very, very powerful lesson. Um, And in fact, it kind of reminds me of the fable of the boy who cried wolf, right? It's like, you don't want to reinforce a kid's anxiety that's not, um, you know, uh, you know, based in some actual reality or threat. And same thing, parents should be careful not to uh, be doing things that's really about their own anxiety, uh, not not yeah. for the welfare of their kids. Um, so it kind of goes kind of goes both ways. Um, awesome. So you, I think you've provided so much uh, actionable advice. Thank you so much for spending uh, you know some time with us on the Maximus podcast. I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of uh, men and fathers and parents and and even uh, you know uh, uh, adolescents who would benefit from listening to this in terms of their own uh, relationship with anxiety. Uh, and then potentially, uh, you know, seeking treatment for it. So just one last thing, how can people find you in terms of whether it's your practice in order to come see you or uh, engage with you on social media? Sure. Um, it's myocdcare.com and all my social media handles are myocdcare. Awesome. Well, so Twitter, uh, Instagram. Conversation. Online. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. My pleasure.